You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Chris Pinsarwell, good to see you, my friend. Greetings, Daniel Coffey. How are things in uh, <coughs> Pennsylvania? I guess the weather's calmer here than there. Yeah, uh, so for people who don't know or haven't noticed, we, we, uh, Missouri is the buckle of the – not only the buckle of the Bible Belt, but we're in, where I am is Tornado Alley. And there have been some really major storms. And, and, and do you get tornadoes? I know that Western Pennsylvania does, but do you get them where you are? Well, you know, we did have a couple of tornadoes a couple of weeks ago. Uh, oh, in okay. area. I mean, we don't get, we usually don't get these F4 killers that level your church or whatever, but we, you know, we definitely see some, we see that. Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah. Hey, what a cute little puppy that is behind you, man. So this is Madison. Madison is actually 12 years old, so she's not a puppy. <laughs> um, she's a combination Bichon Freeze and Poodle. She got the Bichon Freeze brain, though. She's not very – she's not a genius, let's put it that way. Um, but a very uh, sweet disposition. Um, um, she's the star of Sophia. That's right. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, um, what's, how much you got left in your semester? Uh, this is the last week of classes. Yeah, this is my our next our last week is next week. Um, are yeah. you going to have a tough final season or pretty easy? It's all papers. I don't have that many students, but it is going to be a big stack of papers. You know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I try to avoid finals week like the plague. I try to make everything due by the last day of class. Yeah. <laughs> and then grade out during finals week. You know. So, yeah. What are your What are your summer plans, Crispin? Uh, I'm traveling. I'm going to Portugal and Spain with. Oh, uh, nice. My partner Jane Irish, and uh, just kind of a vac- art an art tour maybe. We want we're gonna head to the Prado. Um, any war- any writing projects? I'm thinking about. Uh, uh, I, I guess I'm working on a book proposal right now on philosophy of history. Ah, yeah. I mean, I don't know if you saw that piece in the New York Times, where, like uh, drawing history, or you know. Like, what shape does history have? Yeah, 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 yes, I did. Yeah, yeah so I'm, I guess I'm working on a book proposal along those lines, maybe. So are you a, are you a Collingwood fan? I really need to go back and read Collingwood on, uh, what is it, uh, uh, what's the history book called? Uh, anyway, I haven't read it since I was in grad school, I guess. Yeah. Um, here's, the, here's the really interesting thing about, you know, I've been, I've been actually um, – burying myself in a little Collingwood lately, and I'll tell you why. And, and it's, it's tied to the history, right? And that is Collingwood was the major resistor to the scientification or scientizing of intentional explanations, right? So okay. it was Hample that was trying to say, well, all expo- this is sort of the early versions of sort of explanatory reductionism, right? So like intentional explanations are just, should just be the same kind of covering law explanations as explanations in physics. And it was Collingwood that kind of resisted it. Yeah. And then alongside people like Ryle, right? Who, who otherwise they would have had very little in common, right? But on this yes. one issue, because Collingwood was an idealist, right? But on this one issue of whether intentional explanations that is giving explanations for behavior in terms of reasons, right? Yeah. Um, should be considered scientific explanations. And Collingwood was one of the chief ones resisting that trend. And yeah. that trend didn't really sort of win, win over until Davidson. 
until actions, reasons, and causes. Okay. Yeah. So Collingwood fits it. Collingwood, of course, has an entirely separate relevance in philosophy of history and all that, but he has an interesting role to play in the battle in the battle over intentionality. Yeah. Which is why I kind of dip back into him. Um, but, um, I don't even well, know what my opinion is on that matter, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> maybe we'll do a, a dialogue on that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm one of, I'm, I've been lately staking out a position where I'm saying we should return to the pre Davidsonian uh, position. Um, that I don't think, and, and it, it ties together with my, my appreciation for sellers. Yes. Because sellers whole idea that, you know, the manifest image is, is represents a fundamentally different kind of explanation. Um, that's not interpretable or translatable into the scientific, I think bears on the question of whether intentional explanations should be taken as causal explanations or not. Um, so I've been sort of staking out a position that, that the, the Davidson move was a mistake and we've been sort of working in the wrong framework since then. Um, well, that bring, you know, that seller's point, you know, brings up this, I guess maybe what we're going to talk about today, this conceptual scheme thing. Yeah. Right. So like is science and maybe like just common sense experience or however we want to express that, are they separate worlds? Are they separate conceptual schemes for mapping the same world? Yeah. Uh, are, are they completely compatible? I mean, I, my, I'm tempted to say that they're actually not different conceptual schemes here, but, uh, right. right. Yeah. So let's, let's say tell the audience what the topic was going to be. Okay. It's, um, I have to apologize, but whenever I get Crispin on the, on the, on the Zoom, I want to just immediately start talking. Um, um, so today I wrote a, I wrote a essay for the Electric Agora, um, um, that's titled, um, The Past is Not What It Is or What It Was. Um, and it's, it was a response to an, an essay that another Agora, Agora, um, con- uh, contributor had written about the nature of history, uh, and it then led to me thinking more generally about the extent to which reality or facts are penetrated by our frames of reference, our conceptual schemes, and even perhaps our interpretations. Um, and that then got me thinking about a whole uh, bunch of uh, uh, deeper philosophical questions. And, but to narrow the focus and to sort of keep it so that it's digestible, um, what I, the first thing I wanted to sort of talk about was the extent to which the idea of conceptual and ontological relativity that Quine describes in his paper, Ontological Relativity, the inability to distinguish conceptual schemes from the things that they are about that you find in Davidson's paper on the very idea of a conceptual scheme, the extent to which those um, arguments slash ideas are essentially 20th century linguistic versions of the view that Kant puts forth in the first critique. And that is that our categories penetrate the world in such a way that we can't speak of the world as independent of our minds in the simplistic way that the enlightenment philosophers prior, right? So they would distinguish yeah. between the external world and the stuff that's in the mind. And Kant, Kant as I read him says, look, we can speak in the abstract of the noumenal, meaning that which exists independent of any conceptualization, but that is not the object of our investigations. The object of our investigations is the world as experience. So for all practical purposes, when we speak of the world, it is a thing that is penetrated by 
the mind and thus by our right. concepts, right? Which is shown by the, by the categories, right? Uh, right. you know, like time, space, causation, right. uh, you know, in other, our experience of the world is impossible without such categories. And yet, could we be sure that that is anything except structures of the mind that we're bringing to our experience or they are contexts they obviously are. Right. Uh, right. So, yeah. So if we were talking about the noonal, we'd be talking about things outside space, time and causation, etc. And then things as they exist about? independently of any conceptualization is the way yes. that I sort of um, um, described it. And the language I've been using and that I use in the essay is penetration or I use your word entanglement, right? The idea that, um, because look, prior to Kant, people like Descartes through Hume understood that the mind is penetrated by the world, right? That the world has an effect on what we experience, right? But what Kant showed or argued was that the mind, that the world is also penetrated by the mind, right? That, that, That the things we are talking about, the things that our theories are about, are things as already conceptualized, right? Right. Um, um, and so... Um, so the experienced I, world is already penetrated by the mind. That's right. And so my question to you is, sort of, first of all, do you accept the sort of basic Kantian picture? And then the second question is, do you, do you think that the Quine-Davidson sort of arc on this subject is essentially simply a reiteration of the Kantian point, except in the linguistic idiom? And so... You know, when we get to the second question, I'll say a little bit about what the Quine-Davidson arguments are because I, the audience may not know. But just to begin with, do you accept the sort of Kantian amendation to the Enlightenment tradition that occurs before him? I mean, I, this is a, quite a complex. That's you know, not a fair question to ask you. Yeah, uh, <laughs> my basic answer is no. Okay. Okay. Uh, because yeah. I accept it, so I want to hear. I want to hear your reasons for not accepting it, and I want to hear how you avoid the problems that are Kant's reasons for proposing it in the first yeah. place. Right? <laughs> That's a hard one, and it's not going to maybe. My arguments in this regard are not going to maybe stack up to Kant's arguments. Like it's not a direct refutation or something like that. Um, I'm not okay. So one thing is. I think this is a matter of faith. I mean, in, in sort of the most general metaphysical picture, rather than reason. Although you know, Kant takes a hell of a crack at it. Um, Could you explain that? Yes. So I don't think I'm not sure how we could show that space and time are forms of consciousness rather than external facts. Okay, like, I'm not sure what data could possibly bear on that, right? Uh, or let me, ask, let me ask you a question about that. I mean, could you not add, do it the following way? Could we not ex- imagine a creature that does not experience duration? We could say that there is such a creature, I guess. Um, I'm, or experiences it very differently. Like, I mean, the movie Arrival, I don't know if you saw the movie Arrival. No, I don't think so. Okay, now this this is a it's worth your seeing, but I mean, one of the things about it is that there is an alien race that's introduced that experiences duration in a very different way than the, we do. It's not linear. Um, um, we experience duration in a lot nonlinear form. Right. Okay. In other words, couldn't you approach the question that way rather than empirically? Couldn't you ask? Look, I mean, surely the the experience of duration that we have, which is what leads us to think there's time at all, right? Um, is, is, 
is contingent, right? I mean, you could you could imagine something that either doesn't experience duration at all or doesn't experience it in the way that we do, right? In which case, it would have a very different – its world would be very different, right? Well, its experience would be very different. I'm going to re- resist every move out from that to describing distinct worlds and so on. Well, but let's let's but but then let then let's go right at Kant's reason for it. Kant, I mean, I, the reason for it is that without it, you just get into skeptical holes, right? I mean, the reason for it is that you get into the problem with you can't avoid Barclay's idealism, then, right? Because the whole point of of Barclay was that look, um, this notion of distinguishing the, the the properties of things that are in the mind from the properties of things that exist in the external world is unsustainable, right? Right, I kind of think it is too. You wind up with a kind of Humean skepticism that either you can kind of naturalize away, which basically just means I'm not going to concern myself with that, or if you concern yourself with it, you're going to have to wind up a kind of Barclayan, right? Right, Um, but Kant Kant ends up a skeptic too, if you ask me. Like, we can't say a damn thing about the noumenal. Okay, that is, we can't talk about reality at all. But is it not plausible to sort of say the world that our theories are about is not the noumenal. The world that our theories is about is the world as experienced by us, right? Yes, but my basic picture is simply that we are tiny minds, you know, tiny things, animals scurrying around on a planet. And time and space, we are in time and space, not it in us. A, a creature why that is... Why can't it be both? I mean, I, I'm assuming Kant is saying it's kind of both, right? I mean, in the sense that, no. I mean, look, look, you don't. Ha- it seems to me that you could accept Kant's point without having to accept any of the specific things that he's claiming are categories. In other words, you could accept the general idea that the world as not experienced or the world as unconceptualized is purely an abstract notion. It's not the object of any investigation. Right. It's, it's the environment in which we're embedded, and it's the thing that we're investigating. Now, we can go wrong. And all, I mean, so I'm, I'm a realist in this sense, okay? I mean, Kant says, like, we haven't had any luck, you know, looking at our ideas as a result of the world, the way the world really is. Now let's look at the way the world really is as a result of our ideas. All right. Now, I understand why you would make that move it answers a lot of problems that arise at that moment in philosophy and so on i and i can't establish that that's false i think although i can i have a lot of appeals to intuition or what do you really believe about this or even like sort of a naturalist uh yeah i don't i don't think that this is something that can be demonstrated i agree with you i mean this is just more a matter of what looks what what looks like the best way to think about the relationship yes. right um and i guess what look let me let me push you then okay fine we're little minds that inhabit the world right um i'm assuming by the world you mean the world that includes trees and rocks and mountains and rivers and things like that now yes. of course that's not the world inhabited by a creature that only perceives heat right I, that is they, that creature by hypothesis is in the same world Okay. He's in the same world, but the world is the world as experienced from one, one, one way or another. And thus, the world, his science is going to be really different from ours, right? He's detecting different features of the same world. I mean, that's exactly the way you drew the but I don't think that Kant has to deny that, right? Kant simply has to deny the idea that 
the world that is the object of your investigation is the world as not not the world as experience, but the world as it is independent of experience, right? Right, and I, this I mean, all this depends on like what you think the nature of human experience is, right? Like it's uh, to me, it's a way of negotiating a, a, an external environment. Okay. Um, that's what our categories are for. That's what our perceptual apparatus is for. Like we are not, we don't have the power to make an environment. Like, Oh no, of course not. But I don't think the like, Kantian view entails that. Does it? Well, it seems he's not, to a, good, he's not a good mania. And he's not like Nelson Goodman thinking that we literally make constellations. I mean, that we, that, that we make stars in the way that we make constellations. Right. I was under the impression that for Kant, <laughs> the real issue is that we shouldn't think of the object of investigation as the world independent of anyone's experience, right? The object of investigation is the world as experienced. The world independent of any experience is purely an abstract notion, right? Right, okay. And I think from both ends, we're going to end up denying that distinction, right? Like, so I think the world as experienced is more or less the world as it really is outside of experience. So you think that the new, you think that tr- that trees are numinal objects? I do. Now, of course, and then, I, then, then you'd have to say then that our picture of the world is better and more reliable than the picture of the world of the creature who only who only perceives heat. It's better in the sense that we have more dimensions of experience. It's not better. It, it's closer to reality as far as you're concerned. It's fuller. Uh, we're both responding to real, by, again, by hypothesis, we're both responding to real features of the environment with different perceptual apparatus. But you do realize that, that, that there's a, something a little fishy about that, right? I mean, about yes. suggesting that it's a better view. So I'm not you, saying it's a better view. I, one thing I'm going to say is they're compatible with one another, right? Like so, well, sure, and that's going to bring us to Kant right, and to Quine, right? They can be yes. the statements can be translated into one another with indeterminacy of a minimal sort of grammatical sort, right? But they, but the idea that you know, look, look, I mean, this is I'm I'm getting ahead, and I I promise you, I'm going to Quine. This is why Quine says it doesn't make sense to talk about what the objects of a theory are. It merely makes sense to talk about how to translate one theory into another, right? Um, precisely for the reason that we're talking about, and that is, yeah, I can translate the heat-sensing creature's statements about the world into mine, but when I start trying to say, well, the world as it actually is is more like mine than his, right. then you start sort of saying something that's kind of kind of fishy, right? But I'm denying that, though. I mean, I don't think... Yeah, but he doesn't so- perceive trees. He just perceives gradients of heat. He doesn't, he doesn't perceive discrete object in space, right? Right, and, we, and our perceptual apparatus, our condition is fuller in that extent, but we perceive heat. Fuller right? relative to what? That's the problem. That requires a conception of the noumenal, which is by definition unconceptualized, right? Fuller, fuller in representing the repleteness of the universe. It has more okay. stuff in it, right? If I'm holding the trees are noumenal, right, then I can't uh, – but I understand that we are in a spin. I'm just being an asshole, but, I mean, this is sort of the point, right? I mean, this is why I find it persuasive, and that is, um, you know, I think the notion that one can in some way correspond the independent reality to the statements is just fundamentally problematic. 
That it doesn't mean that the reality is constructed in some literal sense. But what it does mean is that... I, I keep hearing that, though. But the, I keep hearing you saying that. You know, like, there's no sense in talking about what our theories are about. There's only sense in translating one theory to another. And then I'm going like, okay, you're not going to issue into the world or reality at all, are you? You're just going to be playing with words now. And, you, and you're asserting that that's all we can do. I don't know. I don't understand why speaking of the world as I experience it is only playing with words. It's accepting the idea that my theories are about a world as experienced in a certain way, right? Okay. All right. Um, um, for one thing, as experienced in a way that that uh, that, that 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 the world consists of disc- object, discrete objects uh, separated by spatial dimension. Now, a creature that only perceives gradations of heat, right? Its science, its theories are going to be about a very different kind of world. Now, it's the same world. You can translate the statements from one sentence to in, one one theory into another, but the, the claim that one is fuller or better or closer or more like it or whatever inclu- produces no, a relation that I don't think you, you can establish, right? No, it, it's fuller in like a really direct sense in that, for example, the experience of someone uh, who's blind is less complete in one way, than, yeah, yeah. Than the experience of a sighted person. Although they may have a much richer audible yes. universe, right? And so... Yes. That, I mean, there could be compensations. It may even like not be numerically. Delete, yeah, if you just delete the sense of sight, we'd have a less full... Yeah. But that's, but that's not to say that what we do have is not extremely limited. I mean, maybe right. ultimately just as limited in relation to right. some other possible creature as the heat perceiver is in relation to us. Right, right. So, so I mean, the basic picture is there's this world out there, and then there's creatures with various kinds of perceptual apparatus, and then eventually creatures with various kinds of, you know, descriptive apparatus um, to, you know, that enables them to struggle through that world in some way, right? And, that, and that there are actually there are many different ways of representing this world because the world is infinitely rich, it is infinitely rich. Right. Although our conceptual equipment is ex- is very limited with regard to it. So you can have different like whole systems of representation, but they are of the same reality, which is infinitely replete, like not exhaustible on any system of description or something like that. So, I mean, is the basic problem that you have that, you don't you 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 think that the Kantian view can't resist a slide into a kind of um, mentalistic world making? Yes. Um, okay, because I don't. I, I think that that's a look. Look. To be fair, <clears throat> we talked about this last time. That's 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 one half of the interpretation of Kant is that it does entail that right? I mean that's the idea that's the German idealistic interpretation of Kant, which which I've always thought is just gets it wrong. Um, um, which you know whatever you know people can decide what they will about my view, my opinion of Kant versus Hegel's right? Um, um, and I don't expect to win. Um, but so I mean to be so fair enough. I mean I'm not suggesting that that view is crazy because it's not. Um. But I do think it's. Right. I, I do think. Let's put it. Let me retreat into something simpler, rather than saying that the idealists are wrong. 
let me say that there is a Kant star, which does not entail that, right? Um, um, I think there is a way of reading Kant um, in which he's much more like Quine or Davidson, right? Now, now look, let, let, we're going to get to Quine in yeah. a minute. Let me ask you this. Do you think that Quine's view entails... I mean, because this might get to the question of whether you think Quine is essentially saying the same thing as Kant, except through the, by way of the linguistic idiom, and we will lay out what Quine says in a minute, but just to get your feeling on this, do you think that Quine's ontological relativity is, it has the same problem? I suspect it does. Um, I mean, I think these figures are a little squirrely on this matter. Like, they're not, I mean, that, that's unfair, but uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a little hard to give them a clear reading on this. I mean, it's not that Quine is sitting there denying that there's. Because he's about the most scientific, friendly, friendly philosopher you can think of, right? I mean, yes. I mean, I mean, he rejects all intentionality because he thinks, you know, because because, you know, it requires the analytic synthetic distinction, right? I mean, I mean, right. he's very naturalistic. <laughs> but do you think that he's that he also winds up being committed to a kind of a slide into an idealism? Uh, I do. I guess I do. Uh, or at least I think he gives you no equipment to, uh, you know, to stop that slide. Right. Or like it, 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 it feels to me like he's pulling us in this in direction of kind of linguistic idealism. Now let me ask uh, you something else about this before I give a little sketch of Quine. Um, um, is the slide into let, – let's say I accept the, the inference. Let, let, is the slide into idealism by itself a sufficient reason to reject the view? In other words, do you take that to be a reductio? Or – do you reject it on independent grounds? Do you reject the arguments? I mean, I work on the arguments, um, but I do, in my head, that is a reductio. But that's not enough to say, right? Like, you've got to try to show why that would be the case. Yeah, I'm not accusing you of anything. I'm just curious whether yes. the idealism is a non-starter for you. That's just sort of, you know. Completely. Yeah. All right, so that, to me, I mean, this is maybe the most basic thing about me as a philosopher is that, my antennae are up for idealism. I see it here and there, and I want to resist it in every case. You know, like I detect it maybe too quickly. Which too may easily. mean you're a bit overly sensitive to it, right? I mean, you yes. may see it where it isn't, right? I mean, yes, it's like, it's like communists, right? I mean, you might say, <laughs> you're, sort of the, you're sort of the um, House Un-American Activities Committee with respect to idealists, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. But if you're telling me that space and times are for, space and time are forms of human consciousness, yeah. yes, to me that yeah, I would a composition that I definitely regard as idealist, and I definitely want to resist. Yeah, that's that's probably a, I probably wouldn't go that far with Kant. I, I probably right. would want to stop simply at we can't know that, that there is penetration, but that even to itemize it in that way is problematic. Because to, even to itemize it in that way seems to me to require some conception of the noumenon that's more than a merely abstract notion, right? Um, yes, um, but so does mind penetration, right? Like, what are we penetrating? Well, I know, and that's why I said it's not a very good metaphor, but I've also used your language of entanglement, which maybe is better. And that's the last yes. thing I want to ask you before we go to Quine, because maybe I misunderstood you when we talked about your book. We did, and I highly recommend not only to everyone to buy Crispin's book, which of course you should have done already. Um, Engelman's. Yeah, I don't, I'm looking around to see if I have it here, but it's, it's I think I it. back on my shelf. Um, but that you should watch the two videos I did. We did on it. I was under the impression that your notion of entanglement 
does bring the world and our and our conceptions and all this stuff into a single frame of into a single frame of reference. So, yes. why is your notion of entanglement not Kantian? I mean, I give, is this a bad morning I'm giving you? <laughs> <laughs> no, and it's really it's really true. I mean, if we talk about Davidson or whatever, like the very idea of a conceptual scheme, Which we will in a minute. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he comes to a realist formulation off that yeah, that I can accept enthusiastically. But that okay? that's because his realism is because it's yes. so penetrated that it's disentangleable, right? I mean, right. But what is penetrating what? I guess my view is that the world as it really is, is penetrating my consciousness or is completely shaping my consciousness uh, at all times. Mm, I mean, I see what you mean. Yeah, almost if the penetration is big enough, it doesn't make sense to speak of it. Is almost what you're sort of saying, right? right. So your entanglement is literally the mind is of the is the is the world, right? I mean, it's sort yeah. of. Or I say the mind. Let's say the mind was the brain. Isn't whatever. that worse than idealism? Right? I mean, isn't that sort of some kind of fucked up Spinozistic? Yes. Um, um, monism. Why is that not more of a non-starter than idealism? For God's sake. <laughs> Well, because it's it's true and idealism is false. Oh, yeah, no, but it is yeah, like because kind of, they're weird, not because they're true or false. So for me, I have a weirdness quotient, right? So. No, these are my intuitions, man. These are my common sense. But it, it's also true that if you go in either of these directions and you start identifying mind and world, or just like saying that they're indistinguishable in some sense, like that can be a formulation of my kind of what I call realism or whatever, right. or it can be a formulation of like Hegelian idealism. Okay. So if there's no firm distinction makeable between yeah. reality and the representation and our representations of reality, that can be an expression of idealism Yeah, because reality is in some sense, an artifact of our representations, or it can be, a form of realism because our minds are in some sense a reflection of the external reality. Again, like these are not questions I think you can really but I think I think that one, argue on. Yeah, but I think that one of the things that, that Davidson is very clear about and that Quine maybe it's more implicit is this idea of the theory and the thing it's about is is fundamentally a problematic way to look at it. Now, I take the reason for that being is because they're entangled. That's what I mean by penetration, right? right? Um, and, okay, and, I agree with that. I mean, I can accept that. But then, I don't, then, I don't, then I'm not sure I understand where we're disagreeing. Um, right. True. There may be, there may be different ways to come to the same place. I mean, I guess my, my, like, if I'm deciding between these, I'm doing it on a kind of emotional or intuitive ground. One thing is I want to knock the human down a peg. Like, in other words, I want us to be like one. That's species. interesting. That's interesting yeah. because I want to, I want to knock it up. Right. Um, um, I think these, that, that may be temperamental as much as yes. anything else. Right. I mean that I, I'm, I'm more and more, the older I get, the more and more I think that the philosophers can, the main, one of the main philosophers conceits is that the views they arrive at are primarily through their methods and not, a matter of their temperaments. Um, I agree. Um, and I, I'm more and more kind of, you know, and that's more and more because I'm sort of realizing just how much my own temperament yes. seems to affect that things. Um, 
<coughs> let's talk about uh, – let, 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 let me give a little sketch of Quine. Because, Crispin, one complaint that we have been getting a few times from people is that we are assuming everybody knows too much. <laughs> um, so let me um, um, just sort of sketch Quine. If you object to my characterization anyway, please uh, pipe in. And then I want to hear to what extent you disagree with him because of the idealistic slide it entails and to what degree you think the arguments are, are not there. So Quine... Quine gets to what we call ontological relativity through a, a, a mid-step, which is the indeterminacy of translation, right? And so he's got this very, very famous example in Word and Object, um, the book Word and Object, where he imagines what he calls a radical translation scenario. And so that's where you have a linguist out in the field um, trying to uh, interpret the, the utterances of a group of people um, who have never been encountered before and for with whom there, there exists no bilinguals. Okay. And so you're trying to uh, interpret their utterances on the basis of nothing but observable evidence, right? And so you're sitting there around and a rabbit runs by and one of these guys says, Gava guy, right? And, um, you know, maybe, I-G-A-I. Yeah, Gava guy. And so Gava maybe, guy. you know, if, if you're a very rigorous linguist, you might change sort of the conditions. You might, you know, you know, have them go in the hut and then bring a rabbit in and see if they still say it. You might, you know, take a rabbit, you know, pour it in and put it in a pot and make a stew out of it. And, you know, <laughs> <clears throat> um, and then, you know, after a while you translate, you interpret Gava guys meaning rabbit. And as Glenn Quine points out the following, he says, look, Every time a rabbit is present, undetached rabbit parts are also present. Yes. Every time a rabbit is present, a time slice or rabbity moment is present. And the interpretation of Gavagai's meaning rabbit does involve the imposition of what he calls analytical hypotheses on the speaker, right? So what you're doing is you're imposing, in this instance, um, Hum, uh, our uh, English uh, speakers' um, uh, basic principles of individuation and counting yes. onto the native language, which may be a mistake, right? And so there's, Quine says, a certain basic, very basic indeterminacy of translation, which means that you can translate an utterance, but only so far as you, in, as you can translate into all the extensionally equivalent um, uh, uh, meanings, right? Interpretations, right? And for Quine, right? For Quine, this is not really a problem because, as far as he's concerned, language is only extensional, right? He doesn't he doesn't think that you can distinguish statements more finely than their extensional equivalents, and those arguments are found in the arguments against the analytic synthetic distinction, right? That's where he's arguing against synonymy and all this sort of stuff, right? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know about you, but in my gra my oral exam for graduate school for um, philosophy of language, because my specialty was in philosophy of language in graduate school, my oral exam I had to explain the relationship between the argument against the analytic synthetic distinction and the argument for the indeterminacy of translation, Ooh. Ooh. which yeah, I just I did now. But don't, I had to do that, that right now. Man. I had to do that when I was twenty four. Right? Yeah, that's. Golly gee, that's, at least that's... they didn't make me do it in French, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
I had to translate from my language exam. I had to translate a section of Leibniz's monadology from French. Wow. <laughs> Which is crazy shit to begin with, right? It's like surrealist poetry. <laughs> right. If you'd asked me to tell you what it meant in English, I would have right. had a problem. I would right. have had a <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that's the argument for the indeterminacy of translation. How does this become an argument for ontological relativity? Well, then Quine goes on to make the following, pose the following question. What really is the difference between a rabbit and undetached rabbit parts? And he answers, well, nothing more than a system of counting, right? Than a right. principle of individuation. Yes. So from that, you get the idea that the world, if what you want to say the world includes are rabbits, well, it also includes rabbity moments. It also includes undetached rabbit parts. So to simply say that the world contains rabbits is to characterize the world with a principle of individuation built into it. So that would be the sense in which the right. world is penetrated, as, I am, as I've been describing. Right. And the world itself is not dictating which of those options is right. You know, right. in fact, yes, you're right. holding the world completely constant. So the world is penetrated in that sense. Yes. The word I'm, the sense I'm using penetrated, Quine thinks. And Quine concludes the paper on, on ontological relativity, which is a later paper than, than the paper on indeterminate translation, by saying, look, because of this, it doesn't really make much sense to say what the objects of the theory are. It makes more sense simply to talk about in what ways we can translate the statements of one theory into another, because that's where you really see the role that these principle that these analytic hypotheses are playing, that these principles of individuation, what Wittgenstein would call these gra- how these grammars right are affecting. Because I, I think what Quine is basically talking about is what Wittgenstein would have called a grammar in in, in the later work, right in the investigations, right? Okay. Um, um, the way that these grammars are working given the different ways we talk about the world, right? Right. So I don't take, so, so first of all, do you accept the sort of, do you accept the arguments for the indeterminacy of translation? Do you accept yes. then how that follows over to the claims of ontological relativity? I, I accept the indeterminacy. And do you think it really does slide into idealism? Because the way I described it doesn't really make it sound like it does, does it? I think it does. I mean, just in the sense that we can no longer talk about the objects that a theory is about. Well, you can talk about about them, but you can only talk about them from a frame of reference. Right. Okay, so we should stop. I mean, I think you said something like, we cannot, uh, you know, the theory... We can speak speak of the the world as a world with rabbits, or we can speak as the world as a world with undetached rabbit parts. But in doing so, what we reveal is that the world... Which one, the, which one of the worlds we're talking about depends upon our methods of counting, right? Well, again, I'm going to say that we're talking about one world that contains, and I mean, yes, to this. yes we're talking about un, the, the world contains undetached rabbit parts and it contains rabbits. Right. Uh, yeah. And, and it contains time slices of rabbits. Yes, it does. Right. So, when a person normally says, Right, the world, the world, the the world is, is it contains rabbits. Right, I'm talking about rabbits. Right. Yes. I, the zoologist, am studying rabbits. Yes. Right. We don't know what we're talking, talking about. The world. Yes. Sorted a certain way. Yes. And you can only talk about the world sorted a certain way. 
There is no way to now. Of course, there is a there is a world unsorted, but that's not the world that any scientist is talking about, right? The world they're talking about is the world as sorted a particular way, right? That's why they yes. talk about. That's why zoologists study rabbits and not rabbit time slices, right? Right. I mean, okay. I mean, first of all, just like the, my basic picture again is that we sort the world by and large because that is the way the world is or else we could not survive in this environment. You know, like if there's a way of sorting the world that makes it difficult to hunt and eat rabbits or that denies the existence of rabbits or denies the existence of lions that are about to spring on your back or something like that or that runs an ontology that obscures that or that regards rabbits as items in my mind or something like that, like different. uh, So, I mean, my view is, all right, so there's one world, it's mappable as time slices. It's mappable as individual objects. Um, Those are not incompatible with one another. By and large, the representational systems that we deploy have got to be responsive to the external environment or we would not exist. All right. So, I mean, one, I, th- I think that. So is the, the world, world really, is, is it the world as exists independently as, from us? Divided up into discrete objects in space or into time slices? Both. Right. I mean, well, I, uh, agree with, I agree with that. Yeah. So. What are we disagreeing about? <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Um, well, I mean, what, what I run into this problem is I seem to be describing an undescribed and undescribable reality. Like, I seem to be getting sucked back into the numeral. Uh, and, you and, think I'm sliding into You think I'm sliding into idealism, and I think that you're sliding into a kind of numinalism, right? Right. Um, um, that science sure. is about the numinal, right? That the, our theories are about the numinal. Um, and maybe neither of us is doing either of those things, um, but the ways, the sort of the 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 the, the land, the philosophical landmarks that we that we are particularly attracted to give the impression that we're sliding the way. Let me yeah. let me ask, put this in. Let me ask this another way because something something you said made me wonder whether this is what's going on. Is your semantics essentially extensionalist? In other words, is it that you simply don't think that? Um, rabbit stages and rabbits are meaningful distinctions, right? That they're purely, that you think they're purely sort of, I mean, that's why Quine doesn't mind it. Right. Right. Um, 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 although then it's interesting that he thinks it entails ontological relativity. Yes. Yes. Um, (laughs) That's my puzzle on Quine right there. Right. If you're an extensionalist in semantics, then you think that, there are no more fine-grained distinctions to be made, right? In other words, you deny synonymy, right? So you deny that, right? If you, if you don't believe in synonymy, which Quine doesn't, right? That, that's the arguments in Two Dogmas from Empiricism. Then the notion that undetached rabbit parts and rabbit are not synonymous right. doesn't cut any ice, right? Yeah, true. Um, 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 they're essentially equivalent. Um, well, I mean... I think so are you, you an extensionalist yourself? Is that no. the reason why you don't buy, you don't you don't grow this way? I mean, I haven't thought about it in these terms exactly, but I I don't think so. So I do think that a creature who sorts by time slices is having a rather different experience 
than a creature that sorts by, you know, in, by individuating objects. Is it not fair to say, though, that they do live in a very different kind of world? No. I don't see, see that's exactly why I think you're moving toward an idealist, man. Yeah, but, but, like the world isn't subjective. The world doesn't have anything to do. I, I could be having hallucinations. That doesn't show I'm living in another world. Look, right? let, 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 me, let, me, let me explain to you the sense in which I mean that, okay? Um, a pessimist lives in a very dark world and an optimist lives in a very bright one, right? That's um, just a metaphor, the, man. No, like, no, no, no. no, no. Unfortunate of, mistake. of course it is. What I'm saying, though, is... I do think that there is a substantial meaning to the idea that people live in very different kinds of worlds without suggesting that they, that, that they're literally different worlds in some crude sense of, well, there's earth A and earth B, right? And I guess what I'm saying is that it seems to me that the accusation of the slide into idealism entails a very crude interpretation of what someone means when they say we're, that, that, that someone lives in a very different kind of world. I think that there can be tremendous substance to that notion without it entailing a kind of crude idealism, right? Well, well what's wrong with just saying that the melancholy person and the happy person are experiencing the same world somewhat differently? I mean... Well, nothing, nothing. But yeah. look, I mean, you could say the same thing about... I think it is true that a bat lives in a very different kind of world than we do. And I also think that it's true that a bat experiences the world very differently. I think that those are two ways of saying the same thing. I completely disagree with that. The first way of saying it, though, appreciates the extent to which um, the penetration that it seems to me you've already accepted is significant, right? Um, No, look, like, okay, so... Zoologists don't study rabbity moments. They study rabbits. And that's... Fair enough. Zoologists... Uncritical. Look, what philosophers, what most people sort of embrace and do uncritically, philosophers, it almost seems to me like you're suggesting philosophers should abandon their fundamentally critical stance, right? I mean, look, philosophical distinctions typically make no empirical difference, right? Right? You can be a Barclayan and still drink coffee, right? Right. So in other words, it almost seems to me like you're, you're suggesting that philosophy should be much more like science and much less like philosophy, right? Well, I'm suggesting that you should say flatly what you mean, because I don't think that a bat lives in another world, and I think we know that. We co-inhabit the same environment. Yes, of course. Look at them go now. They're flying out of the essence of that cave. They're echolocating that tree and stuff like that, okay? Uh, We share an environment with bats, or else it wouldn't make sense to do things like try to save endangered bats no, or deal with their fungal infections or something like that. Um, I just I, I I see that you're that that people on these lines like Goodman is a great example. Of this they're trying to give you a sense of how profoundly different experiences can be, how profoundly different like our experience from a bat's is, or even your experience from mine, or our experience from something that organized the world in terms of time slices. I'm just going to say like, that's just an unfortunate piece of hyperbole. And I think Davidson would agree with me, for example, on that. No, but see, uh, Uh, yeah. So so, uh, we'll do Davidson in a second, but here's what, here's what I guess what I'm thinking. Now that you mentioned Goodman, I actually think Goodman and you are making the same mistake. They're just, you're just erring in different directions. Right. And that is, you're inclined far too much to what I would describe as a descriptively crude hypostatizing 
of philosophical distinctions, right? In, in other words, and that's why I asked you before whether you, you are largely opposed to the critical function of philosophy because, look, the fact of the matter is, the fact of the matter is, the zoologist uncritically studies rabbits, right? The Quinean point is irrelevant to the practice of zoology, right? The fight between Barclay and Descartes is irrelevant to the practice of any science. But it sounds to me like you're suggesting almost that it is relevant, right? And that's because you're, you're inclined to hypostatize the Barclayan conclusion in a way that strikes me as either it's crude or it reflects a philosophical rejection of the critical function of philosophy, right? In other words, yeah. I think it's philosophy's job to make distinctions that have no practical effect, right? That sure, have, I'm, I'm down with that. Um, and so it seems to me that both Goodman and you are making the same kind of mistake with rel- relative to the Quinean Kantian conclusions, just in the opposite directions, right? You're being you're yes. being too crude in your interpretation of it in the direction of this way, and Goodman's being. I'm in. I'm. I'm. I'm sort of. At, in the point where saying, look, this is a significant philosophical realization, this penetration. Yes. But it has, it, it's, not, it's not one that can be hypostatized in the sense of, okay, well, there's Earth A and Earth B, right? That's okay, not so, what it means. That's not what it means. Okay, right? so then stop talking about different worlds, man, because that's what that means. Well, we're limit. look, we're somewhat limited by the language we use. And, and unlike the idea, I'm not inclined like the idealists or like the kind of philosophers just invent vocabularies, right? So it seems to me that we should be able to, we're sophisticated enough that we should be able to understand uses of language that have varying degrees of metaphoricalness to it. Okay, fair enough. Um, 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 I hate that one, though. And I, and yeah. I think it's easy to avoid. Fair right? enough. Like, and it, yeah. gives, it gives a false picture. You know, it, it, it slides you into a disaster, is yeah. my opinion on that. Now, it is true, first of all, that my realism is crude. Yeah. Okay? Like, I mean, my, my original word for this was bonehead realism. And it is also true. <laughs> is that an entanglement? Is that uh, an entanglement? Or is that in a paper, earlier paper? I'm not sure. I mean, I, I, I entered grad school calling myself a bonehead realist. You know what I mean? And that, this is my name that's, for my position. That's great. Uh, but uh, because people said that to me, like it, precisely professors are going, oh, you, something like that. Like you don't even like the critical function of philosophy. Yeah. You can't just yeah. start out by saying yeah the world is exactly what we're experiencing or something like that. Like that just, that's bonehead. And I'm going like, yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, there is bone. This is bones, you know? Uh, but anyway, so yeah, but the yes. point is that what's inside it is not supposed to be made out of bone. It's the, <laughs> <laughs> the bone is supposed to be a container for the thing. You <laughs> I've got a bone head though. It's pure. <laughs> yeah. My daddy used to tell me that, you can't hurt a Sartwell by hitting them in the head. All right, so anyway. But, and it's also true that I'm critical of the critical function of philosophy in the sense that I think there's too much suspicion of our experience. There's too much suspicion of the universe that we exist within. And I want to criticize the critical move or something yeah, I, like that. I agree, I agree with that. Um, and, and listen, I, I mean, I have a whole series of papers that I published in the journal Philosophical Investigations that, it, that basically lays out a, 
a, a sketch of a philosophy, a broad philosophy of common sense that goes across epistemology and metaphysics. I agree with you in the following way. I do think that a common sense realism emerges from the critical philosophy. Okay. But when one is engaged in the critical philosophy, one has to be very clear about how, what, this, what this common sense realism is and what it isn't, right? Um, and what it isn't is a kind of Lockeanism, right? Where there's the, in the, the, the part that's independent of the mind and there's the part that's in the mind and one is a, because that's just exactly the representationalism. Yes. That, that everybody that I care about up through the later Wittgenstein, who you dislike, <laughs> is against, right? Right, um, me too. I'm against that representationalist too, representationalism too, as you say, coming at it from the other end, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I want to deny the representational theory of mind too. I don't like Locke's theory either. Uh, <clears throat> but you don't you don't reject it for the Wittgenstein reasons. You don't reject it for reasons like the private language argument and and the sort of these other sorts of. Not primarily. All right, we're going to have to do a dialogue on the later Wittgenstein at some point. <laughs> okay, uh, let's talk about Davidson for a minute because I actually think I have. I have the coup de gras. I've got the, I've got, it's here. It's down here. And I'm waiting to hit you with it. Um, because in my view, Davidson clearly supports my position and not yours. And so let's just talk about the Davidson view that comes out and on the very idea of a conceptual scheme. Now you were a student of Rorty. Yes. I have to assume Rorty just jerked off over this paper every five minutes, right? I mean. Okay. Yeah. When I, yeah. When I was studying with him, Davidson was number one, right. and his paper was number one, okay? Like, he hit every paragraph included yeah. this paper, basically. Yeah. It came out of his mouth. Yeah. Um, he loved this paper. Yeah, and I love it, too. It's a very hard paper. It is. Not because it's technical, but because what he's saying is so fucking subtle. Right. That, that, and that's why people like you and I, who have both read it probably a hundred times, could come to the opposite conclusion about what it entails, right? Davidson is really an interesting writer, isn't he? Like, Harry. you know, like I just read some Quine and I just read some Davidson. And Quine Davidson. is a better writer. Davidson is yes. much smarter. Davidson is much. I think. I think Quine never fully escaped logical positivism, and I, I think agree. Davidson did. Davidson, yes. Davidson saw the way out. But the result is that the view is very hard to pin down. It's yes. hard to even say that there is a view, right? Yes. Um, um, he writes so simply in a way. Like it's, it's sentence by sentence, it rolls out. But you're like, what the hell is like, <laughs> Oh, my God. You know? Uh, and, you know, one indication of that is that Rorty can read it as he wants to read it. Yeah. And someone who's a complete anti-Rortian could right. read it as completely yeah. uh, opposed to what Rorty's doing. But it really is an interesting thing to try to. So let me I just back to it after twenty years or something. Like wow. Yeah. Let me give a sketch of the paper, um, see if you agree with it, and then we'll talk about why I think it entails the penetrative view that I'm advocating, and why you think it entails the realism that you're advocating. Um, so Davidson aims in that paper. The paper is on the very idea of a conceptual scheme. And, and obviously for the audience, I'm going to link to all the stuff we're talking about. All these papers we're talking about are available. You can get them online as PDFs without having to go, go through a paywall. Um, Davidson's target is what he calls the third dogma of, dogma of empiricism, right? Right. Um, and that's supposed to follow from Quine's 
two dogmas of empiricism, right? So Quine's two dogmas are one, the analytic synthetic distinction, and two, um, the idea that statements carry their own individual co- confirmation conditions, right? Those are the those those he takes to be the two pillars of logical empiricism, right? Yeah. Quine. And I think Davidson realized that Quine had not fully escaped logical empiricism. And thus, there's a th- because Quine accepted the third dogma, which he didn't didn't see. Right? What's the third dogma? Davidson says the third dogma of empiricism is the scheme content distinction that we can distinguish the conceptual scheme or the theory or whatever you want to from the thing it's about. Right? right. Now that to me already is a very straightforward statement of the penetrative view. In my view, it is. It, it sounds very much like Kant, right? Right. That yes, it does more Kant than Kant because he Kant, might use the term. Kant, Kant thinks that the Newman as at least an abstractly conceivable notion. Davidson in this paper argues that reality is completely incoherent. That the notion of it is incoherent, right? Um, and I, don't worry, I've got the coup de grace. I've got the sentence from the paper that I'm going to hit with you right. when, once. I've heard once I've heard you what you have to say. Um, although you probably read the paper more than I have, and more times than I have, and so I suspect you're going to have an answer to what I've. I hadn't read it in a long time until last night. <laughs> um, here's here's the here's the here's the metaphor that Davidson gives that strikes me as the one that's most illustrative. And it's the metaphor of the closet, of organizing the closet, right? Davidson has this cryptic remark, and it's very short. It's a brief little line right in the middle of of the paper. He says, if someone asked you to organize a closet, but not the things in it, you would be bewildered, right? Right. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Now, what does that mean? What that means is, is that the notion of organizing something presupposes that the something being organized already has parts and pieces. Yes. It's already individuated, right? Correct, right. But the scheme content distinction presupposes that the individuation of things in reality is from a theory, all right, from a conceptual scheme, right? That presupposes that you can discuss the thing being individuated um, as distinguishable from the principle of individuation. And what Davidson's saying through that metaphor is that you can't do that. They're entangled. And that's what I mean. What's the principle of individuation? Where does it come from? Conceptual schemes, languages, right? There's different ways of counting. You can individuate this way. You can individuate that way. That's what Quine shows. What Davidson wants to say is it's so entangled, you can't even conceive of them as distinguishable from one another, right? Right. Now, how do you turn that into... (laughs) I give it for realism. By the way, that's not the coup de gras. I have an even better one. But that's right, right. that's the metaphor that I take as being more Kant than Kant, right? That's basically yeah. telling me that the noumenal is inconceivable, that it's inconceivable to even speak of the categories and the noumenon, right? That every the whole thing is like this, right? Okay, so the, that can't be Kant's position, right? That the well, new- it's my Kant star's position. Is right, okay. I'm saying it's more Kant than Kant. It's Kant if he was really consistent and didn't fuck around with the noumenal the way I think that it was a mistake for him to do, right? Right. Wait, um, he wants to do ethical theory. That's what. But anyway. Yes, uh, yes, yes. All right. Yeah. And, I mean, one thing that that addresses, the organize the closet but not the things in it, uh, is the idea of conceptual schemes as w- worldviews. 
as ways of taking all experience or as encountering the universe or organizing the whole universe, right? Like the, the idea of distinct worldviews uh, is being destroyed right there. I think that, that maybe that's why the, you know, he says like, well, you can't organize the Pacific Ocean without organizing, you know, without like you, you can straighten the shorelines, you can kill the fish. Right, but notice that presupposes that the, that the thing you're organizing already is, has, right. is already individuated, right? It's already... Yes. Or it's already broken down into parts by right. some by some scheme. So but then on. you can't distinguish the thing from the organizing system. Right. Well, I agree with that. Which is what you want to do, isn't it? I want to say that the organizing system is very likely to be, you know, I mean, all these words are, are hard and bad. A reflection of the antecedent organization of reality. But that just strikes me as the basic representationalism that you, that, that's, that sounds to me like John Locke, right? Well, I believe that there's such things as representations, uh, as theories and pictures and so on. Oh, I think there are, there are representations. I just think that the relation that traditional representationalism makes between the representation and the thing represented is I agree. hopeless. Is hopeless. That's, why I didn't do, that's why I didn't want to use the word reflection. You know, because uh, that, and then now we're in the mirror of nature and all that too. Um, so one thing, okay, so we maybe we could clarify the scheme content distinction. Like I was just thinking of an example of this. I think in some ways, in on some occasions, it seems like a pretty common sense, obvious distinction. So for example, but but like once we metaphysicalize it, you know, or like try to take the whole universe or something in terms of modes of individuation, it's confusing or it's impossible. But like, say, for example, like we've got a bunch of water. We can measure it using the metric system or we can measure it using the, you know, what, what's the alternative, our system, the royal system. English weights and measures. English weights and measures. Or you could measure it in terms of volume or in terms of mass yes. or in terms of. Yes you know, other sorts of properties, right? Um, right. So this is like a common sense version of the scheme content distinction. And I think like in cases like that, you can make that distinction, right? Like in other words, you know, the English weights and measures and the metric system are two different ways of dividing up the same reality, right? So like at least in some limited kind of common sense versions you, you can at least deploy a scheme content distinction. Like there are different ways of representing, and even different systems for representing the very same reality. Right. Okay. But wait a minute. Look, look, if we're just talking about unreflective, uncritical common sense, then you and I have no argument. I thought we were talking about within the frame of reference of critical philosophy. And fine, you and I just may, may disagree on how critical it should be, but that that it should be somewhat critical, and that it may be critical in a way that need not have direct effect on the practice of scientists, right? Um, in other words, I, what you just said, I don't even think Davidson would disagree with. No, but he, no, no, no. he goes to the trouble. <coughs> excuse me, to call the scheme content distinction the third dogma of empiricism, right? Right. So he's against something. Right. Yes. What, what is he against? If, if not what I'm saying he's against, what do you think he's against? Well, okay, so first of all, I'm not intent on reading Davidson as a realist. I'm not sure when I get – I know because, for one thing, Rorty read him as uh, anti-realist to the max. 
And yeah, I think that's wrong. I think that's, yeah, I think I it's sort of the same sort of, I do too. When I said that you and Goodman are making the same mistake in opposite yeah. directions, I would say something like that about that interpretation of Davidson. Yes. I agree with um, that too, but um, I'm not comfortable just like associating Davidson's position just with my kind of bonehead realism at all either. But, but you're I, not saying this about Davidson. You're saying you think you could use Davidson to, to, to argue for the boneheaded realism. Well, like, okay, so his, just his very last sentence, right, in this thing, which I admit kind of hits you like a, um, uh, it, it hits you like a puzzle at the end of this paper, right? In giving up the dualism of scheme and world, we do not give up the world. Right. But reestablish unmediated touch with the familiar objects whose antics make our sentences and opinions true or false. Yeah, I think the word familiar there is doing a lot of work. That's, that's where I would say my notion of penetration is being articulated. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, unmediated touch. Unmediated touch. Oh, I agree it's unmediated object. because look, if the world is really penetrated, then it is unmediated. That's not my scheme is in my head and the, and it sort of goes in that that that's what that's where he's arguing against the crude hypostatizing of the view, right? Okay. Let me ask okay. you this. Let, let me keep that quote up. Yeah. Let me give you another one and tell you how ask tell this was going to be my coup de gras, okay? Okay. But you tell me maybe there's a way to read this in light of what you just read um that maybe will wind up harmonizing our two views, okay? Nothing no thing makes sentences and theories true. Not experience, not surface irritations, not the world can make a sentence true. That experience takes a certain course. That our skin is warmed or punctured. That the universe is finite. These facts, if we like to talk that way, make sentences and theories true. But this point is put better without any mention of facts. The sentence, my skin is warm, is true if and only if my skin is warm. There is no reference to a fact, a world, an experience, or a pit of evidence. I think that Davidson is so down, and by what I mean by down is negative, on the notion of an independent reality that he thinks we can just stop all talk of reality and just talk about true true and false statements. Right. Okay, my skin is warm. There's a reference to a fact right there, namely the warmth of my skin. That's the way I would put that. I mean... He said, but notice he says, fact, if we choose to talk that way. Yes. But he says it's better, meaning he thinks it's better not to. Right, right I know he does. It's better to just, I mean, the, you, you, can, you can lay out the Tarski T sentences without any reference to a fact, the world, or anything else, right? And that's, look, Davidson is a deflationist, right? There, yes. Okay, look, there is nothing Which that I am also, by the way. Right. Um, um, partly for this reason, right? Uh, it, it gets you don't have to start talking about the world then. You just talk about what it is for statement to be true is just for the for for the statement, right? For, what it is for snow is white to be true is for snow to be white, right? Right. That is for that to be factual. But that's okay. not that, that doesn't describe reality. Yes, it does. I mean, it. it I mean, I you can read Tarski's reality is redundant. Is the point. Right, it's a redundancy right. theory, right? Right, again, like we talked about before, it's redundant because it's trivial, because it's so obvious. Okay, right, but you're trying to make it into something substantial is the point. 
Yes, I am. In my view, I my my penetrativeness can can accept a trivial notion of the world. I don't see how yours can accept a trivial notion of the world. Is I guess what I'm asking. All right, so let me focus on on something that Davidson said. And, and yeah, sure, sure. I'm sorry, yeah. I'm talking too much. Don't All right, worry. no, that's okay. I, I've just got too many things happening in my head right now, though. <laughs> um, I tend to do that. I go in, I do like machine gun blasts. And, and right. So if I said the sun was at the center of the solar system, do you think Davidson saying is is saying that there is nothing that makes that true? There is no fact that makes that true. I think what Davidson would say is that the sun is at the center of the solar system is what makes it true. But I would not yes. think he would say is the sun belongs to a reality that's independent from the statement is what makes the statement true. That's what I don't think he would say. But isn't that, I mean, that's awfully, it all, it seems obvious to me. The Which sun seems obvious. This, the okay. latter, my latter version. But, okay. Look, the sun is at the center of the universe. That just came out of my mouth, a bunch of sounds and stuff like that. That is distinct from the sun, isn't it? I mean, insofar as anything is distinct from anything, all right? So um, there is something that makes – I mean, I, I guess I'm going to go – I'm going back toward this. Uh, I don't want to be a representational realist, and I have, like, a lot to try to work on. I have a lot of ways to try to work on this. But it, straight up, the sun is, a, is in the center of the universe. It's, it's in the center of the solar system. It's not identical to that state. The fact, I say a fact makes that true. And it's not identical to the statement. All right. Now I got a lot. It's a more complex picture I want to draw, but I, if, if that's being denied, if that's straightforwardly being denied, then I do think something has gone. I don't think it's being denied in the naive sense. I think it's being denied in the philosophically critical sense. I do. Because we can't make sense of the idea of fact, or we don't need it, or... Well, for Davidson, there's going to be a number of reasons, right? For one thing, it's kind of the notion of the fact that's involved in the philosophical treatment is redundant. Um, um, Secondly, because um, to start speaking of the fact as independent from the the, the, the statements or the theoretical statements about it starts getting you into the closet problem, right? Um, um, and so, again, you know, I don't – if all that we're talking about is sort of a common-sense realism, I think that that's entailed by my view as well. And so, I mean, I don't, I don't have a problem with that. If the problem is that so, – oh, so, so why would anybody start saying things like there is nothing that our theories are about? You know what I well, mean? Because like, when you try to develop the philosophically rigorous account – of that picture, you start getting into the problems that you run into with sort of classic, uh, classic enlightenment representationalism, right? You start getting into skeptical problems, skepticism. Then you get also, of course, you have the problems that then are articulated in the 20th century by people like Quine um, in terms of the sort of, you know, uh, the inability to sort of, you know, uh, parse the reality beyond a kind of, um, um, uh, broad, extensionally equivalent categories, right? Um, and all these sorts of other things that, again, I don't think have any significance or, or cut any ice for the, the zoologist who's going out and they're studying rabbits. It's like I don't think that being, a, you know, being the fight between Barkley and Descartes means you can't drink coffee, right? Um, all right, but wait, wait, wait. If you tell the zoologist who's putting forward a theory of X that there is nothing that his theory is about, Okay, I don't care like where you 
like how sophisticated, how critical, Hold on, what the procedure. Sorry. That's all right. I just had to, my curtain, the yeah. sun is starting to make me. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, I think okay. the zoologist is just going to go like, but then oh, you and I have so a different eye. the world, didn't you? But like, that's why okay, before. I'm talking about peccaries or whatever, you know? But like, that's uh, why I wondered before whether what you're really rejecting is the idea of critical of a critical philosophy, right? I mean, that's why I was wondering whether your problem really is that the philosopher is making distinctions by way of the critical analysis of language and of, of these notions that sort of has no point, right? I mean, or that winds up being absurd if you imagine a normal person hearing it. But look, I'm happy to have that conversation about the, the, the relevance of critical philosophy, but I didn't think that that's what our disagreement was about. I mean, it could be that that's what it's about. Well, I mean, I think, I think like the philosophical methodology or the philosophical criticism should run the other way. Like, okay, there is obviously something we're talking about when we say that the sun is at the center of the solar system. Now, all these pu- puzzles arise about that. Our obligation is to work out those puzzles because we know damn well that there is something we're talking about. Okay. So in other words, so if you end up after a hundred years of inquiry going, guess what? There's no such thing as the sun. Then I, which, okay. There is nothing that a sentence about the sun is a sentence about. I hear that as a flat denial of the existence of the sun. And so you know, in other words, we can't see it, we can't theorize it, we can't talk about it. Well, but then, but then, I do think that really, this is what this is about: is the proper, appropriate role of philosophy. And I mean, look, it sounds to me, in that sense, like you're more like a traditional Humean in the sense that you think that you think that. Look, here's the difference between Hume and Kant. Hume thinks that um, uh, skeptical paradoxes are where philosophy ends, right? Um, um, and we just have to re- return to sort of natural belief. And Kant thinks that skeptical paradoxes are where philosophy starts, right? Um, um, and look, to that extent, to the extent to which uh, I'm inclined uh, to sort of embrace what I'm calling critical philosophy, even with the re- accepting the idea that, that, you know, one has to sort of acknowledge that it, it doesn't have uh, the s- sort of uh, substantial implications perhaps for much of practice, um, I'm more with Kant on this, um, although I have had certainly my Humean moments, um, um, and I might have, I think, think gone through a Humean phase. Um, but um, I do think... <laughs> I'm, I, we all, man. I'm not ready to litigate that at this point. I mean, I, I, th- yeah. you know, I thought we had a substantial disagreement within the critical frame. I'm starting to wonder whether we don't, though, whether our disagreement is more about the critical, about the critical frame in the first place. Um, but we can get more internal to the discussion as well. I mean, this, we were really pulled way out into the, you know, the realist, anti-realist debate, I guess. Yeah. I mean, that's why I sort of asked you, I kept trying to find out where I thought your problem was. And that's why for a while I thought maybe he's just an extensionalist. And so he doesn't think that, that these distinctions, these more fine grained distinctions really cut any ice, but you said you're really not an, you're not a semantic extensionalist. Um, you well, think that creature with a heart and creature with a kidney are substantial, have our expressions with substantially different meanings. You don't, do. you do, do. Right. So you're not I an do. extensionalist, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you do think that rabbit time slices of rabbit and, and versus rabbits is, is a substantial difference, right? I do. Um, um, and so, um, but I mean, my basic view is like there, there are infinitely many, I'm not sure if that's literally correct, you know, points of view on the world 
yeah. you know, or you know, possibly infinitely many conceptual schemes, they all have to be compatible with one another insofar as they yield truth or something like that. And certainly that, and Davidson yeah. would help me do that, right? Yeah. Like in other words, like you're not going to be able to distinguish ultimately one conceptual scheme from another. So if Davidson is aiming at Gavagai, right, he's going to say that in fact we can't understand their conceptual scheme as a entirely distinct conceptual scheme. No, and that, look, look, that's if you read Davidson on radical translation, right? Davidson's view, in a sense, he doesn't disagree with Quine, but he's he almost what he says is that look, um, the imposition of our own scheme is unavoidable. And indeed is a condition for translation, right? Because Davidson right. says something else that he says in the conceptual scheme paper that's very interesting. Quine thinks that, so too. Yeah. Is that Davidson says, look, the notion of an untranslatable language makes no sense. If it's untranslatable, there's no reason to think it's a language to begin right. with. Right? Yes, exactly. Um, and so but trans- the way I- for translation to be possible, it's predicated upon the imposition of one's native scheme, right? Is one's native analytical apostasy. Otherwise, there's no reason to think that one's even confronting a language, right? Uh, although, right. But see, I guess my little account would be that we can translate these one to another because we're in the same environment, actually. Uh, and we're the same kind of creatures in the same environment. I understand what um, you're saying, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and also, I mean, this is a big problem because time slice talk and, uh, you know, or undetached parts talk, that is in our language, right? Like, we already brought right, that. That's why you could translate. Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's supposed to be a radically different thing, but they're maybe as close as we can get, but we can't actually express right. a radically different conceptual scheme right. in our language. Right. And it, there you almost get into a Nagelish, Thomas Nagelish kind of problem. I mean, you know, the, what is it like to be a problem? Right. Um, um, and, you know, um, I um I think let me let me just say the sort of last thing I'm going to say about this and that is that I think when 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 Quine says we should talk less about what the things our theories are about than about how to translate one theory into another yeah. when Davidson says stuff like we can talk about facts or reality but really it's it's best to just talk about Truth and falsity, right? I think yeah. that that is them both understanding and accepting that within the critical philosophical framework, we push up against certain limits that are problematic to go beyond, right? Yes. And so we That's should, hot. in a sense, restrain a kind of, you know, sort of. In other words, I take my penetrative view to actually be anti-metaphysical, right? Right? Um, precisely because, in a sense, what I'm saying is this notion that somehow we can pierce the veil—that's that's metaphysics, right? Okay. Right. But my what view I'm saying is, is what I'm yeah. saying is our knowledge is of the world of the veil, right? And all this talk about reality is talk that somehow suggests that we pierce it somehow, right? So that's why I was wondering whether maybe you and I are actually on the same page. We just employ a very different set of metaphors. And that might just be because we came to the view from a different set of heroes or an overlapping set yeah. of heroes. Yeah. Um, but 
enough different ones that we 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 we, li- we have different uh, metaphors that we really like, right? Um, I think mean, it's anti-metaphysical. Okay, okay, we can't penetrate the veil, and my my view is we are being penetrated by the world all the time. Well, I agree with that. I mean, there that is, is not no the hard part. The hard part is right. the reverse, right? <laughs> yes. I, right. It's the uncritical talk of the world that I have a problem with when it's done within the framework of philosophy. I don't have any problem because to me that implies metaphysics. But look, we do at least get- see that. Even if you don't agree with it, do you at least see that? In other words, from the way I'm coming yes. at this, I don't mind the uncritical discussion of the world. What I mind is the philosophical discussion of the world because to me that involves metaphysics. That right, involves look, piercing the veil notions. Okay, we can't pierce the veil. We can't pierce the veil. Right. That surely is a metaphysical claim. Okay? I mean, and it, and it, you know, and it gives you a picture of the whole situation of the person, the subject, the veil of experience. And the world beyond it. Now, I'm saying that the person who thinks you can pierce the veil is the only one who thinks of the veil as distinguishing from the world. What I'm saying is you can't distinguish the veil from the world. Okay. Right? Philosophically. Philosophically. But surely that's a metaphysical claim. I mean, in other words, you're talking about the nature of the world, right? Or, I mean, well, I mean metaphysics. as experience. Look, or- in that sense, Hume does metaphysics. What I mean is metaphysics in the, the dirty sense, the sense that analytic philosophers don't like. That's what, right. I, that's what I mean. Um, I don't mean metaphysics. If all you mean by metaphysics, look, in that sense, Quine is doing metaphysics. Yes. But I would describe Quine as an anti-metaphysical philosopher, um, <laughs> right? Um, um, in the sense that but if by metaphysics you mean this kind of supra, extra, empirical, you know, a prioristic right. kind of, you know, substantial a prioristic knowledge. That's what, I, that's what I mean by being anti-metaphysical. My view is anti-metaphysical in that sense. Um, like, for example, if I'm Quine and I say, like, language encounters the world as a field of force or whatever, that kind of thing. Yeah, God, Surely I, that's a metaphysical picture or whatever. Well, look, and, and those are the time, those are the moments when you really realize that Quine never really got escaped log- the logical positivists, right? Even the, look, even, even two Darwin's of empiricism, it's fucking foundationalist at the end of it. It's not even, I mean, he, he, <coughs> yeah. his web of belief is foundationalist. Yes. The Quine-Davidson <laughs> relationship is really interesting, right? Like, you can see all over Davidson that he's worried about Quine all the time. He's in dialogue with Quine. Right. His, his, his philosophy is incomprehensible without Quine. Right. But that's good. Look, Davidson's younger, right? Yeah. So, David, so Davidson has a perspective. Quine is... Quine can never entirely escape Carnap. Mm-hmm. I think that's really true. And Davidson, I think, probably thought that he was taking Quine's project where Quine should have taken it, right? You know, How is ontological relativity di- substantially different from empiricism, semantics, and ontology? It's not. Right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yes. Right? Carnap talks about you can't talk about Reality independent of, I mean, it's the same thing. I mean, it's just a more sophisticated, slightly less compromised sort of version of it, right? Um, but, but more argumentably rigorous, maybe. Davidson has the benefit of being younger and being able to see Quine, see outside of the frame of reference of the logical positivist, which I don't think Quine ever was entirely able to do. Um, 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 and that's, that's still, you can't get Davidson without Quine. Right. 
but Davidson represents a sophistication upon, right? Yes. Um, 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 the only problem is that Davidson, then Davidson goes entirely wrong by ignoring sellers is what I'm sort of going to say. I mean, um, um, and not, not giving pro- proper respect to the distinction between the manifest and the scientific image. And in that sense, Davidson almost becomes Hempelian, right? He thinks all kind of, you know, explanations all are, are going to wind up being causal, right? But look, are the manifest and scientific images, surely those are conceptual schemes. Well, we're, we can talk about that another time. I did a yeah. whole dialogue with Massimo on this. <laughs> and I actually think they have fundamentally distinct ontologies. And I think that I, I like I like Sellers' view of the stereoscopic vision. That is, because the world includes both matter and persons, right, the only way you get a complete picture of the world is to lay the two images on top of each other like a transparency, right? And then you get a picture, one picture, right? Um, but I, you know, I, believe, I believe that social facts are irreducible. All right, I, I think some social facts are irreducible. So we, we, but listen, we, we, why don't we do one on sellers? Um, okay. um, but 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 this one thing for the audience: we don't have time now to start talking about history. I do want to talk to you about history. So next time, I'd like to do on history. And and here's the question: I'm going to leave you with. Given your resistance to my very, I'm realizing now, phallic, penetrative view. (laughs) (laughs) Now you're scaring me, man. You're assaulting me, dude. I thought you were comfortable. I thought you were a modern guy. I thought you were comfortable with these things. I didn't think you had those kinds of, anyway. I'm I'm a a snowflake. (laughs) (laughs) You're a right-wing snowflake. I ain't no right-wing. Do you feel about historical reality and facts the same way, or there are you willing to accept an idea of penetratedness. Um, that's sort of what I'm going to leave you with. And um, um, that's really hard, man. That's um, a, yeah. Um, yeah. And that's actually this a huge fight I had with this, one of our contributors, Mark yeah. English, about who, for, to whom I was writing the essay to begin with. He was sort of insisting that there's a way that past is and that, that history, you know, approximates it. And right. that immediately set off my alarms. The first thing I sort of sort of did was give him a lesson in the scheme content distinction. Right. And then I pulled out Philip K. Dick's Man in the High Castle to say, yeah. and if you thought it was bad for science, it's even worse for history. Um, so let's pick that up next time. That'd be great. Um, and uh, and uh, we can talk about just history because it's too much to do it now. It is. We've covered too much land already. So, All right, Crispin, thank you so much. Good luck with finals. Thanks, you too. I feel like this is pretty rocking. I don't know how enlightening it was. I feel like every conversation is rocking. I enjoy it. This stuff makes me want to live, um, seriously. I kind of agree with that, man, like very much so. Um, and I'm I'm so disheartened by our profession right now me too. that these sort of informal conversations are the only things that make me still feel good about philosophy, I have to be honest. Maybe one day we'll talk about the state of the profession. I am really disheartened by the state of the profession. So, All right, Chrisman, take care. Peace, Dan. And we'll see you uh, very soon. All right. Excellent. Ciao. Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Meaning of Life TV. Meaning of Life will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Meaning of Life programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. 
Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.